In another life, Frank Schaefer would probably be an evangelical leader and someone with a powerful position in conservative politics. His father was the influential Christian theologian Francis Schaefer, and Frank himself, along with his father, have helped create the modern religious right. Frank is the author of Crazy for God, How I Grew Up as One of the Elect, helped found the religious right and lived to take all or almost all of it back, which is an awesome title. And more recently, he wrote, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. Frank, uh, did I get that right? And uh, thank you for being with me. You got all of that right. Excellent. Um, so uh, for those of us who are listening who don't know your Christian background, can you tell us about what that is, uh, what that meant, I guess, in the broader evangelical spectrum, and why that all changed. And then I want to ask you about kind of your political conversion after that. Sure. Well, you know, a thumbnail of this has to go back to the fact that I was born in Switzerland in 1952 to two missionary parents who had come over at the end of the Second World War to work with kids in bombed out cities. They were very obscure. They were very unknown. They were American Presbyterians. My dad was a pastor. My mom came from a long line of missionaries going right back into the 19th century. So I guess the thumbnail here is that I grew up in a fundamentalist, evangelical American home of expatriates living in a little village on a mountainside. So kind of, if you think of concentric circles, you know, we were foreigners in a foreign country, kind of weird people on the fringe of a little town with a weird religion that the Swiss around us looked at as odd. And so really my background starts there. And then my dad, as the years progressed, began to write and he became very well known within the evangelical ghetto, if I could put it that way. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you had asked the average guy on the street in 1968 or 72 or 85, if he had heard of Francis Schaeffer or Edith Schaeffer, my parents, they'd say no. But if you asked the average evangelical going to a Christian college like Wheaton College or Gordon College, or if you had asked Billy Graham or Pat Robertson or Jerry Falwell who Francis Schaeffer was, they would have told you by that stage that he was their great intellectual evangelical who was writing about the intersection of culture and faith, politics and faith, art and religion, and so forth. Like a lot of evangelical families, our family, my siblings, my three sisters and I were kind of groomed to get into the family God business. Now, I don't mean to sound cynical because actually my dad was not a flake. He was not a thief. Uh, you know, we didn't even own a car. He worked on the side of his bed in an old rocking chair using his bed as a desk and a, and a tea tray to, to rest his papers on. This was not a guy ripping people off. He wasn't into the prosperity gospel, not to be confused with the kind of Jim Baker, you know, phenomena in the 80s and televangelists, but nevertheless, writing books that millions of people were reading. And so as a kid, I went along with him in my teen years when he went on speaking Johnson in the States, and I got to know a lot about the evangelical world and got my girlfriend pregnant when we were 17 and 18, got married, had a baby, and really got kind of drawn into the ministry as a young filmmaker who was helping put my dad's ideas into a series of documentaries. Two, one called How Should We Then Live on Art, Culture, and Philosophy from an Evangelical Point of View, and a second one that really changed American history, if I may put it that way, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, 
made with Dr. Sievert Koop, who became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General. And by that time, we were very involved in the rise of the religious right, the anti-abortion movement, and so forth. And so by my mid to late 20s, I was uh, hanging out literally with with the president. Um, in this case, Gerald Ford, his son, Mike, stayed in our home for a year. Uh, his daughter-in-law, Gail, babysat my then newborn child, Jessica. We got to know the Bush family. Billy Graham was a frequenter of my parents' ministry. When I went on the road, Jerry Falwell, founder of the Moral Majority, lent me his private jet. I was the keynote speaker at the Southern Baptist Convention and so forth. When my dad died in 1984, I took a very hard look at this, and we can get into it, and you can ask me questions, but really realized that I had been kind of railroaded, for lack of a better things to do, into a movement that I was beginning to strongly disagree with. I, I really disliked the hatred of gay people. I disliked the kind of reaction against the sort of movies that I liked and the art I liked. Really, nothing that'll surprise anyone who knows where the religious right was coming from. But to me, it was kind of a phenomenal revelation. I'd been raised in this cocoon. And when I began to travel and speak and get outside of it, it started looking less and less attractive. And then, of course, as I began to ask questions about our quote-unquote calling, everything began to unravel. And I finally just walked away from the movement entirely, actually walked away from a, a high income, big speaking fees, and uh, started out, first of all, in Hollywood, making some very unmemorable uh, feature films. I made four sort of slasher, uh, you know, lowbrow comedy type things as a director, and then had the good luck in 1989 to write a novel called Portofino, which was then published to both critical good critical reviews ended well commercially. And that's like, you know, 12 or 15 books ago. And then I'd finally found my actual calling, not one that I had been groomed to take up as the son of a famous evangelical, but as a writer, and uh, also uh, as a sideline along with that as an artist. And that's where I've spent my life as, uh, I'll put it this way, as a, as a grown up making choices rather than the kid who was raised to do something. So mine is a very odd life. And I talk about it in my books you mentioned, my memoir, Crazy for God, and also in this new book of mine, Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. And by the way, the subtitle of that book is How to Give Love, Create Beauty, and Find Peace. And the essence of the book really is saying, when you walk away from your certainties, as I did, and you embrace paradox, and the fact that life is a journey rather than a series of conclusions, you do find peace. Because rather than having to be right about everything all the time, you know, you're willing to learn. And that may not sound revolutionary to a lot of people, but anybody raised in a fundamentalist background, be that Christian or Muslim or anything else, will understand what I mean when you say walk away from certainty and embrace uh, paradox. So that's kind of a, a very fast thumbnail sketch of a very odd life um, that brings us up to the point we are right here this afternoon talking on your <laughs> on your uh, show. So your father never knew you as someone who wasn't part of that ministry, that wasn't part of that movement, correct? Yes and no. By 1984, he and I were already having some pretty big arguments. But the thing is, my dad himself, toward the end of his life as he was dying of cancer in the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, was having grave doubts, not about his faith so much as the direction of the religious right. For instance, he was very staunchly pro-life, but he was not at all anti-gay. He just didn't buy into the whole checklist of right-wing Republican moral causes. And so 
you know, I like to think that if he had lived a little longer, he, he would have distanced himself from where it was going too. although I don't for a minute think he would have done what I did and, and, and basically bail from the religion as well as from the politics. What was the first thing that really got you thinking, you know what, uh, this this cause that I've dedicated my life to is going on the wrong track? Was there one particular instance that really made you reconsider everything? Well, there were a couple, and I'll give you a serious one and a trivial one. Let me start with the trivial. The trivial would be standing in the kitchen of a well-known megachurch pastor and talking with his teenage son and daughter, and we're talking about how much I like the movies, uh, and in particular, certain films like Clockwork Orange, and his wife walks in and looks horrified at me and takes me aside and say, why are you talking to my teenagers about the movies we work so hard to keep them away from? <laughs> Realizing that I had fallen into a an enclave, basically peopled with the kind of folks that if we ever wound up on a desert island together, one or the other of us would have to die because I couldn't coexist with this kind of narrow, culture-hating view. Now, on the more serious side, every time I came home from speaking, and by this time I had two little children at home, realizing what an asshole I was turning into and how angry I was. I don't mean angry in that right-wing sense of lashing out at the culture, a kind of a Donald Trump type of anger. I mean angry with myself personally, just hating every minute on the road, feeling less and less at home there. And I think that had a lot to do actually in a kind of a backhanded compliment to my parents. I was raised by these very ordinary, lovely, evangelical missionary parents who were not greedy they were not empire building. That Dad almost got famous by mistake simply because people liked his early books, but he wasn't part of the mega structure. He was living in Europe. And comparing the evangelical leaders I was getting to know, like Jerry Falwell, like Pat Robertson, like James Dobson, a focus on the family, these people who basically laid the groundwork for Ronald Reagan to be elected and then George Bush and so forth, these people were flakes and they were greedy and they were monstrously hypocritical in the way they you know, use their family empires to build fortunes for themselves, literally winding up in the case of Pat Robertson as a billionaire, et cetera, et cetera. And as I began to compare the the idea I had of what mission work and evangelism looked like to these high rollers who were really con men and con women, I became very disillusioned. And the fact that I was then on the road, as it were, building that movement from which a lot of these guys were profiting you know, started to make me really angry and to make me really hate myself and question everything and forget just big faith issues. I just mean, what what am I doing? How did I get into this? So, you know, my instinct has been towards art and toward literature and toward writing and film. And then all of a sudden I'm out on the road with people who, if you're in discussion with the pastor's wife in the kitchen, you know, she's trying to prevent her kids from seeing the very movies that you think are jaw dropping, eye opening pieces of art. And then on the other hand, every time I came off the road, you know, I was on the road the last year I did this, I was on the road for six months out of the year with little kids. That's a lot away from home. And every time I'd come back, it would just be another big fight with my wife. And I was really angry at myself uh, and, and felt that I was compromising, you know, who I was. So it was it was a mixture of personal and political uh, as well as um, as well as just, you know, disappointment, I guess, with the fact that the big time religious circuit that I was part of was just dreadful. Uh, and just on an aesthetic level, let alone a philosophical level. Do you think things would have been different if some of those leaders that you mentioned, the Falwell, the Robertson, the people who were profiting off of this, 
let's say they were in it for all the right reasons. They simply were dedicated to this cause, but they weren't trying to turn a profit off of this, like uh, we see a lot of televangelists do. Do you think things would have been different for the moral majority for your own uh, work in that field at all? I think it might have taken a little longer, yeah. but I, it would have wound up in the same place because the fact of the matter is, you know, I had been raised in this fundamentalist fictional universe. I mean, to update it, it's a fictional universe where you believe in a literal Noah's Ark, but not in climate change, where science is the enemy, where you always see yourself as the victim in the same way that, say, Donald Trump says that every time, you know, the press says something bad, it's a liberal conspiracy or the system is rigged. You know, that language is all borrowed from the evangelical subculture. Education is rigged, so they don't teach creation. They only teach evolution. The liberal media is against us, which is why gay marriage is legal, et cetera, et cetera. So you're in this kind of subculture where the excuse is never a better argument or that you can overwhelm another argument with facts. It's always that the facts are suspect because if it's politics, then they're not real Americans. If it's religion, then they're not real Christians. They're not our kind of people. If they make a better argument or the facts are against you, then somehow it's been twisted and manipulated and the system is rigged. You know, this is the lingo that that world uses. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, I have, uh, you know, a bigger interest in, I guess, honesty. You could just say basically just straight up human information than to be constantly bought off by arguments that somehow anything that doesn't agree with you is some somehow rigged or part of a conspiracy. Let me it ask just you. Seemed too stupid. It just seemed too stupid to me. But let me ask you about that, because this is something I never seem to understand about the religious right, conservative movement in general. I could completely understand if they said, you know, I am pro-life, for example, for these reasons. I have ethical reasons for being against abortion. And they left right. it at that. But that's not what happens. They they really do, in my opinion, and I think objectively, like you just said, it seems like they just buy into lies. They buy into objective lies and they believe these things that are ridiculous. And it's not just in an objective, you know, an ethical, philosophical difference. It's that they live in this alternative universe where complete lies become their reality. Why does it seem they're so susceptible to this? And I mean, am I blind to my own mistakes here? Like, am I missing out on some objective reality that I, uh, I don't know, I get wrong as well? No, I think you're onto something, and I and I think what a lot of folks don't understand in 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 our culture because they don't come from a similar background to mine, is that essentially this goes back in in terms of its roots, you know, pre-birther movement, pre-Tea Party, pre-Fox News, before Rush Limbaugh, there was us, there was the religious right, and the religious right was basically founded on a fundamentalist evangelical ideal that said the Bible is literally true. And if science proves that wrong, then it's science's problem. And if the federal government goes against what we believe is morally right, then the federal government is evil. So essentially what you had was the intensity of personal religious faith taken into the realm of science, politics, and education, where of course it can't fly, and so then you demonize your opponent by saying the only reason they don't understand this is either they don't have the spiritual eyes to see the truth, this kind of hidden truth that only we can see, 
or worse yet, they're kind of a demonic evil presence in this world, and we're here to set things to right. When you when you take that pattern into politics, for instance, then you get the kind of Sarah Palin's and you get the 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 right wing interpretation of politics, which says, you know, whatever the facts are, let's just take a present day thing. Donald Trump going around saying the U.S. is crime ridden, that we need stop and search, that black people are worse off than they've ever been in America, not taking into account anything. I mean, that boggles the mind when you think about that. Right. Slavery never pre- happened. Pre-slavery, segregation, lynching, you know, would that never happen? When you look at these things, what you get is this sort of a, a way of operating uh, that is based on an alternative view of reality that itself is religious in nature. Now, there's two kinds of people in this framework. Say, take Donald Trump followers. There are the people who actually really believe the non-facts. They think we're living in a dangerous country, that crime's going up, that immigrants create crimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, take away jobs. doesn't matter what the facts or the studies say. They're going to believe that. Or they don't really believe it, but they're so used to being defensive about their bigotry, their racism, their homophobia, that essentially they pretend to believe this. Either way, it comes out the same in terms of the political and the religious result. But essentially what it is, is a kind of a victimology. Poor little us, our truth never gets told. So we have to have our own websites. We have our own radio stations, our own TV shows that tell our version of the truth. The fact that no facts back it up is neither here nor there. This is our team and we're rooting for it, period. And that can be based in genuine ignorance, white underclass, rube, stupid America. I hate to use those words, but it exists. And then it, it can be based in just defensiveness because you have indefensible positions, so you cling on to the irrational. Or these are outright bigots and they don't care about truth or falsehood. They just want to get the black guy, the brown guy, the immigrant. They hate them. And so if you have a liar like Donald Trump saying, Muslim immigrants cause crime or Mexicans are rapists. Doesn't matter what studies show or actual statistics in exactly the same way that the gun lobby operates. You know, there are 50,000 documented gun deaths a year in the United States, period. Nobody disputes that. Most of them are the kind of white underclass people shooting their girlfriends, their wives, bar fights, disputes in the street, suicides much as they die from not quitting smoking or drinking too much or driving when drunk. But if you read the gun lobby information, they're telling you that these are all homeowners who need to defend themselves against home invasion, which almost never occur, against black people who don't shoot white people, against against uh, crime in the streets when crime's steadily gone down and is about the same rate that it was 30 to 35, 40 years ago now. Facts have nothing to do with it. So you have a you have a kind of a circle the wagons emotional response based on either bigotry or outright stupidity. And then that's it. You can't crack it because the baseline of information doesn't exist. They don't even acknowledge that a baseline of information exists outside of their loop. And I run into a lot of this now because I do video blogs on my Facebook page, little two and three minute commentaries on this election. And I get very rational responses from people who agree and some people who disagree. But when I hear from the Trump diehards, they never are able to answer anything I'm saying. They just give me a link to one of their off the wall 
Twilight Zone sites that list stuff that never really happened. So now that's inarguable because it's not a question of comparing facts. It's just that's how they feel, period. And, and, and to understand that, you've got to go back into the world of fundamentalist Christianity in America and see the roots of this right-wing movement in that movement. Then you get this irrational religious vibe. If you just look at it as politics, literally, it flabbergasts people and seems to make no sense. Yeah, as someone who's on Twitter, I, I have received those same types of responses. Let me ask you, is there any way to break through that bubble? Because I can see them ignoring people like me who were never part of their club to begin with. Do they listen to you ever because you used to be one of them? Does that carry more weight at all? None whatsoever. Love Basically, it's like a fast stream in the middle of a river. If you get out of the current and swim for the beach, you're not in the flow anymore. So these guys pay attention to me in the extent that people who were evangelicals back in those days when I was big in that movement still know who I am and occasionally will lash out at me in print or refer to, isn't it tragic how Frank Schaefer went off the rails and so forth. But the you know the trump types or the or the or the you know the millennial t- who has come through their own kind of version and they're at a christian college or whatever it may be they're not going to pay any attention because then i'm just another one of those guys who is telling lies because i'm a liberal and because i've obviously read the new york times <laughs> you my monster. information is suspect because i maybe i cite a scientific study or actual statistics, or actual figures. You know, the minute you speak in the language of rational discourse, you can't be taken seriously by these guys because it's not the currency they trade in. It's like using a kind of a money in a country that doesn't take that form of money. <laughs> They're not, they don't do that type of discussion. <laughs> they just do lash out, rant, and if you cross them, then you're an asshole too. It isn't ever, you know, let's look at this, I didn't know that crime's gone down. I didn't know that people who watch TV news, cable news, are 10 times more susceptible to accept high crime statistics than people who just read print because they're not getting that emotional adrenaline rush of threat that is actually used as a form of entertainment to sell advertising dollars and has nothing to do with the actual level of danger, say, from Muslim immigrants in America to our neighborhoods. You know, (laughs) your local Muslim immigrant is the law abiding guy running the restaurant down the street. Your local Mexican is the guy walking to work from three in the morning until five to get to this place. He has a dishwashing job. He's not mugging anybody. The most dangerous person in your community is a white guy packing a gun in a in a in a right to carry neighborhood who's in a dispute with his wife and he's going to blow her head off. That's what the actual statistics show. But. None of these guys are going to read any of that, and none of that will move them because the very fact you would bring up actual hard facts means you were one of them because we don't deal in that kind of currency. Yeah. Speaking of truths, it's also true that the abortion rate has gone down significantly under President Obama and President Clinton before him, too. They, right, exactly. Yeah. But that would be the kind of thing they'd ignore, just like they would ignore the fact that unemployment's the lowest it's been since the 1990s right now that the stock market has broken all records, that real income went up surprisingly in the last statistics, and that, uh, you know, Obama has managed to wind down a lot of global conflicts that we were involved in, not completely, but certainly digging us out of the mess George W. Bush fomented. None of these things count. His presidency is a failure. He's a terrible person. 
he created racism. You know, you <clears throat> you wouldn't know you're on the same planet if you're actually reading actual facts. Are we seeing the death of the culture wars at all? And let me explain where I'm getting that even question from. I mean, gay marriage, I mean, they can argue about it. The religious right can argue about it all they want, but it's a done deal and we're likely not going back. We do see, even in states like North Carolina, where Pat McCrory is supporting this anti-trans bathroom bill, things like that, there's a significant pushback to that. And I think even younger evangelicals seem to be tired of battles over stupid things like letting people who love each other get married. Um, they seem to be more uh, open to listening to the facts about abortion, and they would rather see fewer abortions because they know trying to ban it wholesale is only going to make things more dangerous. So, I mean, is that side of the religious right going away at all? And what's going to replace that if it is? I think that side of the religious right has gone away. And, and in a weird way, the greatest evidence for what I'm going to say, and there's a, uh, there, there's a flip side to this, is that these guys, 73% of evangelicals are going for the thrice divorced, thrice married, uh, rather, philandering, proud of the other men's wives he slept with, mm -hmm. candidate Donald Trump. And this proves something. And that is all their moral, high moral tone never was about what it was about. The real dog whistle in the whole thing has been race and has been from the beginning. The white evangelical religious right did not start with the anti-abortion movement. That simply ginned it up. It began with white evangelical Christians starting al alternative private white schools, not just in the South, but all over the country and calling them Christian academies and so forth in, in order to escape integration. That was the beginning of it. It wasn't prayer in schools, it was race. The racial thing has never gone away. And the final component of Donald Trump's candidacy is very simple. You know, there Trump could come out and say he is pro-choice right now. He wouldn't lose those evangelical followers because they what they like best about him is that he's anti-brown people. He's anti-black people. Gay rights and all these other things are never been something Donald Trump has been interested in. He cut his teeth in the 1960s with his dad and in the 1970s in a business which was trying to keep black people out of renting properties from them. That was the beginning of his business life. And all his cheating and all his lying and everything he's done since is rooted right back into race politics in his own racist family. And that fact is what endears him to white evangelicals today. They are afraid of brown people. They think that they are coming to get them. Let me, they feel embattled and they, they think these folks are dangerous. And as I said, if you just look at the statistics of the number of people shot every year in America by their own families, by people they know, it's the white guy packing a gun who's more likely to kill you than anybody else in this country. And that's just the numbers or kill himself or kill a family member. It doesn't make white people more dangerous, but it does mean this myth that, you know, Mexicans and Muslims and brown people are coming to get us is just bullshit. It's not bullshit on the basis of me not being a bigot. It's bullshit on the basis of the numbers. You know, you're, you're much safer walking around Spanish Harlem than you are if your car is pulled over by a white cop and you get out without your hands up fast enough if you're a black guy. And even then you're not necessarily safe. And that's the truth of our national situation right now. Let me let me push back a little bit. I get that conservatives don't want to vote for Hillary Clinton because her policies may go against their 
personal beliefs. But you're right. I mean, Trump seems to go against all these values that they claim to hold dear. But I'm sure that if there were an evangelical Christian in this conversation right now, several of them that I've spoken to in the past, they will tell you that you're wrong about the race issue, that they they adopt black children, that their Christian schools are full of uh, black people, Latinos, you know, all these other people who are not white. And I'm sure, I mean, you know this, they're going to push back and say, this isn't about race. We welcome people of other races here. So how do you respond to that? Because, I mean, they're not going to roll over and say, yeah, you're right. This was always about race all along. I would agree with them when it comes to the individual instance. You know, there's a movie that's just been made about my life by, it's nothing to do with me, by the way, but we're in it. uh, It's called Let Me Be Frank. And by the way, people can see it for free on YouTube if you just I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But in any case, um, you know, in it, I'm very careful to say the individual on the on your block who's an evangelical might be the most generous person you could imagine. They're who you want babysitting your kid. The thing is, when they come together as a political force, the engine that has been driving the South, for instance, ever since Nixon did his kind of southern strategy, wink, wink, nod, nod, dog whistle you know, we're, we're, we're going to push back or mass incarceration or any of these other things. What has driven that has been a kind of a continued Southern strategy. So yes, individual evangelicals could be very staunchly pro-life, have, have adopted two kids from Haiti, all the rest of it. But the roots of this movement, whatever the individual Christian school now has for its race makeup, the roots of this movement go back into a pushback against integration. And there's no way around that. That vibe has remained and it has changed. So, yes, your individual evangelical school may have some black kids in it or may not, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, Bob Jones University had their interracial dating ban until when, like 1990 or 2000? I mean, it was recent. Yeah, exactly. Like two minutes ago, historically. (laughs) And that vibe continues to go on. And, and, you know, look at Jerry Falwell Jr., who I knew when he was a young man. I mean, here's a guy who's now the president of Liberty set, University, you know, who's got his his students at Liberty Baptist College, which he now just calls Liberty University. He asked them all to apply for open carry gun permits to carry loaded weapons. These are his own students on campus. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Right. right. And he said, in case the Muslims come to our campus. So, yeah, they have black students at Liberty University. But the vibe hasn't changed. You've got kids carrying loaded weapons in case Muslims come to our campus. So the enemy changes the 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 who they are, capital T-H-E-Y, changes. Okay, it's not the black guy who wants to drink from your water fountain so much now. That was your dad or your granddad grudged him. Now you're waiting for the Muslim boogeyman or the Mexican who's going to do whatever. Right. The vibe has not changed, and essentially it still has a racial, bigoted component to it. You said you started walking away from the religious right in like the mid-1980s after your father's passing. Was your political conversion happening simultaneously, or did that come much later? No, I wouldn't say much later. I think it was simultaneous, but it it, it was in stages. I first walked away from the movement with no clear idea of, oh, I'm going to be something else. It was just, I'm out of here and we'll have to figure out what to do. And for the next 10 years, I was kicking around Hollywood, making crappy movies like Headhunter and <laughs> Wired to Kill, Booby Trap, Rebel Storm, Baby on Board, all this kind of stuff. I wrote this novel, Portofino, which became part of a trilogy, the Calvin Becker trilogy, Portofino, Zermatt, Saving Grandma. And I was very fortunate. It got very good 
critical reviews and I found a whole new readership and turns out, you know, I had a different life ahead of me. <clears throat> but as I moved away from the theology on one end and the kind of right wing stuff we were involved with, obviously I began to look at what these basic beliefs were. And I would just say it came a little later, but within seven or eight years, I was essentially just not believing what I had been taught anymore theologically. And 10 or 15 years down the road after that, even more so. And by the time I get to writing this book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, you know, I'm so far away from the fold of any kind of evangelical or fundamentalist view of religion that from their point of view, I am an atheist or a heretic or an agnostic, but anything that, but what they would call a Christian. Uh, I want to go back to something. What's the difference, do you think, between someone like yourself and uh, someone I've spoken with on this podcast before, Bart Campolo, also the son of a uh, famous evangelical preacher, versus people like Franklin Graham or someone like Jerry Falwell Jr., who clearly have followed in their father's footsteps and maybe even gone even more to the right? What do you think is the big separating force between you all? Why did you go in one direction and they go in another? Is that just coincidental? Well, first of all, footnote, Bart is uh, figures in this movie about me, let me be frank, in the sense that he and I were on a panel together in a bar in New York talking to some people over drinks, as it were, and somebody filmed it, and uh, it's part of the movie, and so he's in there. Okay. But, um, and I track, I've tracked with Bart. Um, I, I think the difference between a Franklin Graham and me or Bart and me and Franklin Graham or Jerry Falwell Jr. is 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 a couple things. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, the big bucks are not in what Bart and me did. You know, Bart has been pastoring small churches and writing books and people read and doing some talks. Uh, I think he's pretty much broke most of the time. I've been a little more lucky in that some of my books have been bestsellers and I'm still on a speaking circuit. But, you know, which has nothing to do with evangelicalism, like, uh, you know, speaking at um, Kansas City Public Library or or Princeton or whatever it might be on the university circuit. You know, there's a few fees there. But, you know, there was more money on a book table at our big seminars in the 1970s at my father when we were launching his films in Dallas, say, for instance, than there is in my pocket in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's literal. I mean, so I'd say the first thing, I don't want to impugn people's motives, but the big bucks are not in walking away from a happening movement. They are sticking with the program and living that lavish lifestyle that obviously, you know, Franklin Graham with his private plane and all the rest mm-hmm. of it lives. Um, you know, he pays himself a little over a million and a half a year, and that's not counting benefits and, and you know, or anything else. So that's the first thing. But then the second thing is, is that I think a lot of these guys may have started out as very sincere, but once you become the actual face of the program, there's no way to question your own beliefs without questioning, you know, your entire, uh, I guess, not just reason for existence, but livelihood, your persona. So, you know, it's like expecting Taylor Swift to suddenly not just walk away from her music career, but to speak out against it and say, you know, I've, I w- I've never been a good singer, and I'm sorry I was trying to fool all you people all those years, but I'm out of here. People simply, if you get too far in, you don't do that. And the thing is, with me, I was fortunate in that because I wanted to be a filmmaker and then a writer, I actually had something I believed in far more 
and I know this sounds a little artsy fartsy, but you know, art and the the intrinsic worth of beauty and creating things really spoke to me much more than any kind of movement politics or religious movement did. So I don't think that in the case of Franklin Graham and and uh, Falwell Jr., I knew both of them as younger men. In fact, I knew Franklin when he was a kid nine years old and visited my parents' ministry with his dad, Billy, back in the day. But I think these guys just simply got caught up and never had the imagination or the good fortune to find something else. And then when you get used to a couple million bucks a year of, of chump change and the rest of it's all benefits and ministry owned properties. So on paper, you know, you're, you know, you're actually living much higher on the hog than even supposedly what you're earning. It's hard to walk away from that mm. unless you have an overriding desire to either create beauty, make something creative, do something different with your life. Um, and then by the time you've given up on your beliefs and you're just a total flake, which I'm sure Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. are at that point, Hey, this is what you do for a living. It's more like the mobsters and the Sopranos. You know, they may question what they're doing, but hey, at this point, they've chosen their life. You know, like the guy says in The Godfather, this is the, this is the profession we have chosen, and they're just stuck with it. It's interesting you bring up the speaking fees. I don't talk about this much, but I've spoken at a couple of churches as an open atheist doing dialogue with the pastor, and the, the honoraria that I receive from those churches, if that's the right word, the honoraria, uh, yeah. is is far more than I would ever get from any atheist group or any other, even a university that brings me in or something. It's it's interesting. You're right. There's a lot of money to be made playing the church circuit, whatever you well, are Well, and everybody puts their hand in the till because, see, if anybody, if they weren't generous with you, you know, then their own slush fund, the amount they're pulling down would be questioned. In other words, it's like being in a casino, you know, and, and nobody's going to tip anybody $500 in normal life at a table, but you're in there and money is easy come, easy go. And it's just a plastic chip and you toss the dealer or the chip and, you know, at least they do in the movies. It's the same kind of thing. I mean, liquidity and cash, you know, in a ministry environment, it's all cash. And then Jim Baker, you know, got caught and went to jail. But most of these guys don't get caught. And now and he's back and selling just, buckets of food. It's just easy come, easy go. And yeah. it's more cash on the book table. And if you put a a wad in your pocket, who's going to notice? And they're so used to that, that of course you go debate there or you speak, they're going to throw some your way because it's a cash economy. They mm -hmm. just think that way. And Jim Baker is still around selling buckets of food. That's um, it. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you one last question, then I'll let you go. Uh, Cause I know you have an opinion on this. There are listeners right now who are probably on the liberal side of the fence, but for whatever reason, they, they can't stand uh, Hillary Clinton, and they're considering voting for someone like Gary Johnson or Jill Stein because uh, they're disillusioned with the choices that they have. What do you say to those people who are on the fence thinking about voting for a third party or not voting at all? I would just say that, you know, one of the advantages of having been born in Europe in the 19, early 1950s and grown up there and gone to boarding school in England and being a reader of history and interested in these things is that I have a sense of the way this is not an ordinary election. Look, this is not an election between two ordinary American candidates of the left and the right or two establishment candidates. Hillary Clinton is a very prepared person. And whether you like her or not, that's the fact. Okay. She's not going to start a nuclear war. She is not a fool. People can bitch about the Clinton Foundation, but it doesn't do what Trump has done, which is 
go into the funds that are supposedly for charity and use them to pay your legal debts and in the many suits you're involved with and all this stuff the Washington Post has investigated. But the real point is this, and I hate to be so blunt, anyone who will risk allowing our democracy to slide into the grip of a pathological liar and wannabe Putin, Vladimir Putin fascist for America really is not thinking about the historical connotations. And they're thinking in terms of an ordinary American election where you can have moral equivalency between the two candidates, you know, Dick Nixon, okay, he's a crook, but Kennedy comes from a family that has mob connections. And yeah, they're both kind of corrupt. But when you scrape away everything, you know, even Richard Nixon understood the American process and was not a fool. Donald Trump is a fascist, a genuine fascist. He's a thug. He threatens violence. He's calling his observers to go to the polls because he says it's rigged. He's called into question the entire American electoral system, which is not a federal system. It's your local librarian running the elections in your in your community. This guy is not your usual candidate. So anybody voting for Jill Stein or anyone voting for Gary Johnson or just sitting out the vote cynically because they think that it's too corrupt, I think is making a historical error on a par with sitting out the election in the 1930s when Hitler's on the ballot. It doesn't matter who's opposing him or what they've done or didn't do. This isn't politics. This is protecting your interests. If this country becomes a fascist state under the thumb of, a, of an oligarchical tyranny of the kind they now have in Russia, which is not a stretch given who Trump is, then anyone who has not fought tooth and nail to prevent this is going to spend the rest of their life regretting it. And I am afraid that too many people have this overconfidence in the American system, have really bought into this right-wing idea of exceptionalism. Oh, well, we're America, somehow we'll survive it. We will not. The US will not survive a Donald Trump presidency. It'll still be here as a presence, but it will never be the same country again. The very fact this can happen in America that this misogynist, racist thug can somehow get into the White House means that the American experiment as we understand it is over. Now, it won't end with a bang. The stock market might still be there for a while, but life as you know it is over. And for you and your children and the future, it is over. So this would be the equivalent of having made McCarthy president. He was just a senator and then he got, you know, don't... He got put in his place. These other fascistic pigs we've had come forward in American history have been put in their place. This is like Lindbergh coming back from meeting with the Nazis in the 30s and coming back with his anti-Semitic screeds and we made him president. Then when Pearl Harbor's bombed, you know, we're on the side of the Nazis. It changes history. So we didn't make Lindbergh, who was pro-Nazi president, we didn't make McCarthy, who was an anti-communist bigot president. We always shut these guys off. We didn't make George Wallace president after he refused to integrate schools. This would be like making one of those guys president. And then in an alternative American history, the game is over as we know it. So this is the highest stakes election anybody who's alive right now, no matter how old you are, or how young you are, has faced or will face. And so I say, you know, the frivolity of a third party vote or a, 
a, a protest vote this year is literally uh, is literally folly. So those are tough words, but I can't say anything else because I, th I think I'm actually speaking the truth here. Whatever else somebody may agree or disagree with, if you can honestly look at Donald Trump and not see he's a threat to national security, then uh, I think you have a problem. I think a Cleveland newspaper today, as we're recording this for the first time in like 100 years, uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton as the Democrat. And they actually said those words, that Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to this democracy. Yeah, I mean, usually you speak in, in political hyperbole and it's overstated because we're so used to overstatement in our media and entertainment that, you know, we can't find words. But, you know, literally, I can't find a way to overstate this. Donald Trump is worse than any way we can find to describe him. I mean, you know, I'm a father of a daughter and, a, and, a, and, and I have three granddaughters. This man is a threat to women. He's a threat to black people. He's a threat to the way we think. So, yes, Hillary Clinton's an ordinary politician. And there's bad things about that. But holy shit, you know, you do not compare Benito Mussolini to an ordinary Italian politician who just was trying to get elected. You know, the, the, the fascist Putin-esque type guy that Trump is, is on an order of magnitude out of the loop. So there's no moral equivalency here. There's no like, oh, well, Hillary's done some things. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. This is like comparing. I, I don't know. I run out of analogies. Let me just put it this way: There's no room for third party anything this year. We have to vote for Hillary to save our own necks. It's not a matter of political opinion. It's do you value your life as you now live it? Because if you want to rock this boat to the extent of allowing this man to become president, even if it's by default by not fighting and voting for Hillary, you've got your whole lifetime ahead of you to regret it. Strong words from Frank Schaefer. I'll have links to everything, your movie, your books in the show notes. Thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it.